Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at SumatiSparks.com. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz, and you'll find the quiz right on the homepage of my website at SumatiSparks.com. So today, I am really excited to have as my guest the one and only Cassie Labriola, who has been doing polyamory coaching since before the word was invented, I think. (laughs) Um, Some of you who have read a lot of books might know her book called The Jealousy Workbook, and she has a new book out, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So welcome to the show, Cassie. Great. Delighted to be here. So glad to have you back. And I was telling Kathy earlier that she's my first guest who's, this is her third time on my show. So <laughs> A recidivist. Really honored. Yes, exactly. Yeah, really honored to have you back because you just have so much knowledge and experience in this field. And um really excited to start talking about your latest book, which is called Polyamorous Elders. Aging in Open Relationship. So tell us how you came about writing that book. What uh, what made you decide to do a book on polyamorous elders? Well, uh, I was been waiting for many years for someone else to write this book, and no one did. <laughs> so I guess I figured I'm going to have to write it myself. Um, I am a poly elder myself and have been doing polyamory and coaching people and counseling people around polyamory for many, many years. Uh, And when I was a young polyamorous person in my late teens and 20s and even in my 30s, I never knew knew of or saw or heard about any older people practicing polyamory. And so as a result, I never had any role models and uh, other people who are older who had been doing it for a long time who could, you know, maybe give me advice or maybe uh, help me with uh, problems or maybe at least be able to, I could look to see how they were doing their relationships and how it was working for them. Uh, and at the time, of course, this was before the Internet was invented. I know that's very hard for younger people to imagine, but there was a time before <laughs> the Internet existed, and so all these various poly resources weren't available. And at that time, there were no poly-friendly or poly-knowledgeable therapists, and there were no books on the subject. And so we really were literally just making it up as we went along. Uh, And having role models would have been extremely helpful uh, in terms of just having more someone other people with more experience that could advise us and help us but also just to be able to see other people succeeding at this particular type of relationship it's very hard to do something and to even have a vision of doing something if you don't see any other people doing it and at the time the only people i could see were people who were you know young people in their 20s who of course you know we didn't have a clue what we were doing uh and right it made me very much wonder, is consensual non-monogamy sustainable? Is it something that can succeed? Because everyone I see who's like over 30 is doing monogamy. So uh, I wanted to write this book to show that there are people that have been doing this for decades and are succeeding at it quite well. I hope that will give both uh, older people to be able to see 
themselves reflected and their stories being told, but also for younger people to see that this is a sustainable relationship model that they can decide to live this lifestyle for their entire lives if they want to. It's not something you just Mm -hmm. do when you're young and experimenting. Right. And you are one of those role models. You've had um, relationships that extend for decades, yeah? That is for sure. That is very true. Mm -hmm. So so you're walking your talk. (laughs) So yeah, when I see when I heard you say um, to see people succeeding, it's, that's so important because there's such a belief out there in the default world that polyamorous relationships. Um, there's just so many negative tropes about it that you know that they don't last, that people are just doing it for nefarious reasons. You know, some people have been hurt uh-huh. by dating someone who calls themselves polyamorous, but they're really not very ethical, so they have a make a judgment about the whole love style based on this one jerk they dated, you know? <laughs> so um, so uh-huh. I, I love that you're talking about seeing people succeed. And this is why I think it's so important to have community to, if you're new at this, to like find a community that you relate to so that you have other people doing what you're doing because the greater world doesn't have our back. You know, they'll, they'll strike us down and say, well, at least, you know, you're having problems because you're polyamorous as opposed to you're having problems because you need to build up your skill set, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, so what I are think, some of the yeah, skills that you say, teach? Oh, well, I tried that once and it didn't work. Or, oh, I knew some, a couple <laughs> right. that tried that and, oh, they end up getting divorced. And, but you never hear someone say, well, I tried monogamy once and it didn't work, so, oh, monogamy never works. <laughs> you know? Exactly. You never hear that, yeah. So so what are some of, like, the key, if you had to name, like, you know, three of the most important skills that we need to learn to make polyamory succeed in the long term, what would you say? Well, I would say, um, first and foremost, knowing what you want, knowing what makes you happy, knowing what your needs are in relationships, and being able to articulate those needs clearly to a partner or potential partners so that you're actually going into a relationship stating pretty clearly what your needs are, and that person uh, then can tell you if they feel they can meet those needs or if that model is not going to work for them. Uh, Because not only do you need to understand whether you're polyamorous or not, there are lots of different models of polyamory within the bigger polyamorous world and so it's pretty important to narrow down a little bit what model really what type of polyamorous relationship is most likely to make you happy because so often i see people getting into relationships with people that are if they want a really incompatible model mm-hmm. yeah just to interrupt you for a second before you go into the other two things um i learned that when i was uh, the first couple of relationships I had, I thought, oh, we both want to be non-monogamous. Great. We're a match made in heaven, right? <laughs> and I learned that the first person I dated, he wanted to, like, be with everybody, every woman he could possibly find, like notches on a bedpost. Like, you know, he was like the classic, like, how many lovers can I make? And I wanted to have, like, one or maybe maybe two deep love connections. And I knew we were incompatible when we broke up and he said, 
at least I didn't love any of my partners. <laughs> I was like, oh, you, oh, wow. you don't oh. love the people you have sex with. <laughs> Like but that yeah, was a, a badge of honor it. somehow for him. Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted to insert that because, yeah, there are so many different ways of doing it. It's so true. And you, sometimes you don't know what way you want to do it until you get out there and try it for a bit, right? Yeah, well, I certainly encourage people to, you know, do some reading on polyamory and to, you know, perhaps uh, take some classes. There are a lot of great, you know, classes both online and in person to try to, you know, narrow down the different models, which model you think is most likely to work for you. But you are correct that some people just really have to go out and try a particular model before they discover, well, that is not really quite what I need. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Okay, so what's number two most important skill for succeeding in long-term polyamory? <laughs> uh, well, it's it's not even about polyamory, but it's about being being the right partner. You know, ha- being in the right model of polyamory is about picking the right partners who are really compatible with you and with the model you're looking for. But it's just as important for you to be the right partner, for you to really work on your relationship skills work on particularly communication skills, being able to communicate clearly, work on your own uh, sense of security and self-sufficiency because uh, in any poly relationship, jealousy is likely to be triggered and insecurities are going to be triggered. So the more you can increase your own experience of internal security, of feeling good about yourself, feeling lovable, feeling worthy and deserving of love, and being able to feel like you are safe and secure as a person, not being just thrown off quite so much by whatever a partner or partner may be do- a partners may be doing. Mm-hmm. That's very yeah, this, important. Yeah, this is great. I'm, I'm so glad I asked you these questions. Like, I'm taking all these notes because you're so good at, like, <laughs> distinct, distinctly uh-huh. defining this. Yeah, it's like I have a partner that I it was kind of a new relationship and it was going along really great, but then um, as soon as I started to fall in love with another person, that's where the rubber met the road and he couldn't, like, say, I'm feeling this way because of your new relationship. He just shut down and, like, cut me off emotionally. And oh. I had to say, like, hey, if you're going to do polyamory you got to up-level your communication skills and, like, tell me how you're feeling. Because every time I'd ask him, he said he was fine. He made it sound like he was fine. But inside, he wasn't, and he didn't know how to name that. So I invited him to, like, step up your game a little. Like, do some, like, what is the, because, like, I did that when I, like, I can look back maybe 15, 16 years ago. I had a big crisis where my partner, I want to say it felt like he, um, demoted me, right? Like I was a primary, oh. and then he mm-hmm. he wanted to have another primary equal to me, right? So uh, uh-huh. that triggered me so much, and I didn't have the skill set to deal with the emotions of that that I, like, fell off the wagon after being sober for 24 years. So, like, that screwed wow. me up so bad. Wow. And I, I, like, I, like, cut him off. And I was like, you're dead to me, right? Like, that's what I did. So I can oh. totally understand. And that's why I got into coaching, because I, I was like, i got to figure this out. Like, 
if this is uh-huh. how much of a meltdown I have, I, I can't be polyamorous, so i got to learn how to do this, you know. So that's when I, like, threw myself into learning and doing all the personal growth work and stuff. So I can understand how this partner of mine would do that because I did that, you know. And now uh-huh. I'm on the other side and I'm trying to have compassion for him, but I'm also saying, like, hey, you gotta got to step up your game and, like, learn why you're shutting down. Like, what's the underlying pain that you don't want to feel, right? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Well, that's because you can have empathy and compassion because you've been through it on the other side, but, yeah, you're, it doesn't mean you should accept that behavior either. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it took me a while to get to the compassion. I was mad at first because I wasn't seeing what was happening. I was just like, why are you cutting me off, you idiot, you know? And then um, I realized, oh, he's doing what I did a long time ago. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you have to do your own personal growth work if you're going to be in any kind of open relationship or non-monogamous relationship. You have to do your personal growth work so that you're able to tolerate and deal with your partner having feelings for someone else and that other relationship perhaps becoming important to them. Yeah. You have to be able to have and your I think own really... boundaries. Go ahead, Troy. Exactly. No, I was just going to mm. say it goes back to what you said about um, telling your partner what your needs are so they can decide um, if they can meet them. You know, and so if you're not talking about that all the time, it's not just at the beginning. Like, you need to always be right. talking about that so that things right. don't sneak up on you. And you. Yeah, and you can say, like, hey, it seems like our needs aren't matching right now. How can we – and you, you wrote the breakup book, so talk about that, too. Like, what are the ways when we realize, like, hey, we want different things now. We don't have to – we don't have to, like – hate each other forever, we can transition into loving each other a different way, right? Uh-huh. That sometimes you can transition into a different kind of love relationship or other times mm-hmm. you have to transition to a more platonic relationship if you really can't be happy together in any kind of love relationship. Mm-hmm. But that brings yeah. me to the third. You asked me the sort of three, the big three in terms of skill sets. Please, the, go on uh, to the third. Yeah. Time and energy management. Having uh, exquisite mm. time and energy management is r- really important for anyone who's in wants to succeed in a, any kind of open or polyamorous relationship. You know, you're trying to juggle not only the time constraints of you know we we poly folks have not yet learned how to. Uh, avoid the time-space continuum. We have not learned to override the laws of <laughs> physics. So we we only have seven nights out of the week and we only have 24 hours in a day and most of us do have to work full-time and raise children and do other things in addition to have delightful poly relationships. So uh, being able to learn to pace yourself, not to take on more relationships than you really can actually deliver on, it's not only about telling your partner what you want, but to tell them what you can deliver. Like, what can you offer them? And being able to have such excellent time and energy management skills that you actually can consistently provide whatever it is that you have offered to someone. People right, often right. complain about being extremely disappointed that they get into these poly relationships and other people will promise them the moon and the stars, but you know they really can't 
manage it. They just don't have the time or the energy, and they're not very good at planning ahead and figuring out how they can make sure they have the time available and even more importantly than the time and the energy to really be fully emotionally and physically present with each of your partners when you're with them. Right, exactly. So, yeah, the time, you know, that's kind of obvious and a little more, to me, it's a little more obvious and clear that there's a limited amount of time and if somebody's feeling like, oh, their partner works all the time and they don't have enough time for them, they want more time with them, and then suddenly their partner's like, well, I'm going to date this other person, they're going to feel like, you know, wait a minute. (laughs) So that's when we get to the energy part, because you said time and energy. So I think that if we're getting, you know, if our partner learns our love language and is really giving us that presence and the energy and the love in the way that we want to feel it, then in my experience, I can feel better about them spending more time with someone else because I'm feeling loved up and saturated when we are together, right? Yes, uh-huh. that's very true. That you feel so satiated I think that's enough. what we have to learn. Yeah, so I think we have to learn that too, is like when we're all excited about a new partner that we need to really focus on attending to our current partners <laughs> so they're not feeling that something's being taken away from them, Yeah. Right, right, and to not take on a new partner if you really, in looking at your life and your schedule and everything you're trying to do, don't take on a new relationship if you really don't have the time and energy for it or be very cautious Mm -hmm. about only taking on a very kind of low-key, you know, very part-time new relationship. Right, right, right. Well, those are great. Yeah, it's hard I love to, when we point. find irresistible, wonderful people, it's hard to say no, but sometimes you're not really doing it anyone is. a favor by getting involved with them if you really don't have the time for them. Yeah, and, you know, there's also another path that my favorite path is to, you know, we have this term in polyamory called kitchen table polyamory when people um, are all know each other and they can sit around the kitchen table and talk about whatever. And so I often joke that, like, the kitchen table is too far apart. Like, I want king-size bed polyamory. <laughs> we can not. Uh-huh. So, like, uh-huh. Well, that's not for everybody. Be, no, no, it's not. I get that. But, like, that's my preferred way of, like, not necessarily that we're all lovers, but that we can at least kind of lay around on a big bed and watch a movie together or, like, cuddle and talk and just have you know, be touch positive as, you know, as well as sex positive and just be with each other close, like really close friends. So Mm -hmm. that's my preferred way of doing it. And if we do it that way, I find that time isn't as much of an issue because if we can all be together and if anybody's feeling left out, they know they're welcome to join at any time. You know, I find that, that the time factor becomes less of a constraint, but that's just me. (laughs) Yeah, that does work for some people. A lot of people, that doesn't work for them because they want a much more compartmentalized model where they want to have their partner all to themselves for the evening or the Mm -hmm. night or the day. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't really, either they don't particularly feel affinity towards the the metamors or their partners, Mm -hmm. other partners, uh, or they just really are feeling a scarcity of, private, intimate, emotionally connected time with the partner. So they really yeah. want that much yeah. more so than, 
hanging out together with other people. Yeah, you know, totally, and that's totally valid. Their it's own kind like, of ideal mixture of you know time with mixture, other people, yeah. time with privately. Yeah, I don't think I would be happy if I never had the one-on-one time, but I just let my metamors know that if any time they're feeling left out and they're having a bad night or they haven't been able to get a date that night, that, you know, I can wait and do my one-on-one time later. I don't want anyone to feel, you know, I mean, I can't take care of everyone's feelings, but I just, I'm an idealist, right? I just want to know they're welcome. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's nice so that you're generous and welcoming. For. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's it's never perfect, but that's what I strive for is that kind of inclusiveness. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, so let's go back to like the elder issue. Um, what are some of the specific things around polyamory for for the elders? Like what what's specific to being an elder in polyamory? <gasps> Well, it's important to recognize that poly elders encompasses that encompasses two generations really. There is are the what I call the older elders and the younger elders. You know, and the older elders are those seventy five years and up who are, are what was uh, sometimes called the greatest generation. You know, that generation that lived through the depression in the nineteen thirties and lived through World War Two in the nineteen forties. Uh, they had a very different life than the young what I call the younger elders, the baby boomers, the which generation I am in, uh, of those who are like fifty five to seventy five because the you know, the mm-hmm. the youngest boomers now are over fifty five. So Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shockingly enough, uh, so those are two very different groups of people because the older elders were raised in a very sexually restrictive, uh, very you know traditional, uh, you know marriage and childbearing was. Uh, you know, essentially mandatory, <laughs> and you know, women did not in those days. Uh, most women did not have careers outside the home, and so that's a very different group of people than you know the baby boomer generation, uh, which you know lived through the 1960s and the so-called revol- sexual revolution, and uh, we came of age into adolescence and adulthood right when the birth control pill and the IUD were invented and when Mm -hmm. women for the first time had access to effective birth control. And uh, so uh, it was a a very different time. And so uh, for a lot of us in that younger group that are now around 55 to 75, you know, started out in our sexual and relationship lives uh, in a much more, in much more non-traditional relationships and so i think the shift to polyamory or open relationships has been a much smoother one for us uh, whereas the older elders those who did and have been doing polyamory and still are uh you know often were much more secretive about it because they didn't want to lose their jobs and they didn't want to lose custody of their children and they didn't want to be completely rejected, you know, by their families and loved ones. So uh, they had a much different experience with having to uh, live in fear much more about their mm-hmm. sexual lifestyle, their relational lifestyle, mm-hmm. and were much more likely to be closeted about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that only continues to um, get easier for people. I think there's still 
um, people who feel like they can't be out because they have certain jobs or they're school teachers or something. But I think the younger twenty mm-hmm. somethings, it's you know the hookup culture. It's just kind of not as big a deal anymore. True, it is true. Yeah, yeah and I think uh, yeah. the 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 older elders are dealing with different issues in their lives as well than more so than the like they're dealing with. Uh, death and dying. Uh, they're de- dealing mm-hmm. with their spouses and partners dying. They're dealing with uh, becoming disabled themselves or having to, you know, move into uh, assisted living or some kind of a, you know, skilled nursing facility or some other kind of uh, living situation. They're not able to, maybe not able to stay in their homes. The younger elders are more dealing with uh, the transition of their. Uh, adult children having kids and you know having grandkids. They're, uh, some of them are dealing with being rejected by their adult children because they're out of the closet mm-hmm. about their polyamorous life. Mm-hmm. The, the younger mm-hmm. elders are also dealing with uh, thinking about retiring from careers, or they may have just retired, so they're dealing with all the issues to do with retirement. There, many of them are dealing with taking care of aging relatives who uh, parents mm-hmm. who are elderly and dying, are they going to have the parents, you know, the aging mother-in-law move in with them? You know, perhaps I ran into many uh, people that I interviewed for the book that were saying that was a huge issue that, you know, if your parent has, you know, hated your lifestyle and, you know, rejected you and hates your partners uh, and has, you know, been completely rejecting of them all, you know, for several decades, are you really going to want to have that person move in with you? You know, are your partners going to want to support that person financially and take care of them around the clock in their declining health? Probably not, you know. So uh, that's a big issue that comes up for poly people uh, and with the aging parents and how or who's responsible for them. You know, with a sort of traditional, like, married couple, there's often the assumption you'll take the your mother or mother-in-law in and take care of her and support her financially. But if you have two or three or four partners living together, are, are your partners going to feel any way financially responsible for your parents? Are they going to feel responsible for taking care of them? And that has often been a very divisive issue in poly families. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Well, I have two questions for you. Um, you can answer them both together or one at a time. But one question is when people are older and um, they, they have multiple partners, I would think that would be a benefit that there's more people to care for someone when they get ill um, or disabled, that there's just more more people around to help. And you're not just relying on this one person to be your caretaker. Um, and then my second question is, I talked to you a while ago about you were trying to see if there was such a thing as a, um, you know, skilled nursing facility or, um, you know, some kind of assisted living center that wasn't prejudiced toward um, multiple partners living together. And did, did you find anything like that? Uh, well, I'll answer the second question first. Um, I cold called and interviewed uh administrators and uh, social workers and people that are you know in charge of these assisted living facilities and other senior living facilities uh, i talked to people at uh, 25 different facilities throughout the country and uh, wow. 
only three of them had ever even heard the word polyamory, and uh, not surprisingly, well, one was one was in San Francisco, and one was in Oakland, <laughs> here in the Bay Area. Uh, the third one was an elder co-housing uh, community uh, in uh, Georgia, of all places, surprisingly enough, but uh, a little different because it's a com- you know a co-housing community. Anyway, uh, all the others had never heard of polyamory, had no idea what it was, and uh, were quite certain that no one of that type was living in <laughs> their facility. Uh, and there are a number of like practical obstacles in that uh, each of these facilities said they would not uh, allow more than two people to occupy an apartment. Uh, and uh, part of that is a space requirement in that some of these apartments are small and really uh, it's a, to protect elders from overcrowding. But uh, a lot of these apartments were like much bigger than my house, <laughs> you know, were very large uh, two-bedroom apartments uh, and could easily have uh, – they were – uh, wheelchair accessible, so they're much larger and sort of larger bathrooms and larger bedrooms because everything has to be uh, wheelchair accessible. So, um, you know, they easily could have accommodated three or four people, but they each of these facilities had a strict rule, no more than two people to uh, occupy an apartment. They also have rules for wow. no overnight guests. Which, you know, us poly Ooh. folks, you know, we have our lovers coming and stay overnight, by yeah. the way. <laughs> uh, and, again, the, these rules, every facility that I talked to had a, a policy, no overnight guests. These rules were made to protect vulnerable seniors. You don't want, you know, a lot of people wandering around the building at night. You know, you, you mm-hmm. want to limit mm-hmm. who can be in the building at night. But there's certainly no reason why there could be there should be a, like, no overnight guest policy. So Mm -hmm. those are things that Mm -hmm. would certainly have to change uh, in order for poly people to feel welcome uh, in a senior facility. And um, there have been in the past 15 years quite a few uh, LGBTQ friendly senior housing buildings developed by queer people for queer people. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, because they faced so much hostility and discrimination in senior housing, because so many senior housing facilities are owned and run by churches or religious organizations, it's like, can imagine mm-hmm. they're not that friendly to queer people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, LGBT people have you know felt the need to build their own senior housing facilities, and uh, us poly folks may have to do the same. Mm-hmm. The people that I interviewed like it, yeah. that moved that have moved into these facilities, you know, were relatively closeted. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of them were, you know, really afraid of coming out about their lifestyle and their relationships. Right. Wow. Now, um, I already so forgot you want to answer the other question? Oh, okay. I forgot um, the other so question before, you asked before, me. Sorry, okay. Again. <laughs> That's okay. Before I remind you of the question... Um, just in case you're joining us late, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at sumatisparks.com. We're speaking with Kathy Labriola at kathylabriola.com with a K. And um, she's the author of uh, her new book, Polyamorous Elders, Aging in Open Relationship. We're having a lively conversation about aging and polyamory. And if you'd like to ask her a question, this would be a good time to call in. The number is 
657-383-1132. Again, that's 657-383-1132. So the question was, is there a benefit when you grow older to having multiple partners to help take care of you? Yes, that is a uh, is very true. I interviewed so many people who said, "Wow, when we got into this poly thing 50 years ago, we were into it for the great sex, the abundance of love, the excitement of being in a very transgressive and alternative type relationships. We weren't thinking about all the benefits of being poly in old age. We weren't thinking of the benefit of being able to uh, have uh, more people in the polycule translating into more resources, more financial resources. If you have three or four or five people in the polycule, both partners and metamors, that's more incomes. And especially when you're elderly and living on a fixed income, that makes a big difference in terms of uh, whether you're going to be able to survive financially. Uh, it also makes mm-hmm. a big difference if you know, one person in the polycule gets sick or is disabled and needs care. There are more people that are available to provide the labor to take care of that person. Or as you get older, if uh, one person can't drive anymore, it's a, a big issue with people as we age that we can't drive anymore. And hopefully there's uh, either from vision problems or slower reflexes or whatever. So if there are at least one person in the, in the polycule that can drive, that person ends up being able to help the others by you know doing shopping mm-hmm. and driving people to appointments and things. So it's it kind of boils Thank down so to much. more people uh, translates into more resources a lot of the time. Uh-huh. Uh, we had a caller, but they seem to have dropped off, so you were on hold. So if you want to call back, I'll make sure and get you off hold if you want to call back, caller. Okay, so um, I wanted to just refer back to your other book that's very popular among folks in the polyamory community called The Jealousy Workbook, and as I was looking over your website, I saw, and I remind, it reminded me when I read your book that you had a section on what to do if your partner's jealous, and I think that's something we don't talk about very often. Um, we do our own personal growth work around our own jealousy and all that, um, but I was curious what your advice was, what to do when your partner, when their nervous system is dysregulated and they get jealous really easily, but before you answer... <laughs> I want to grab our <laughs> caller here so they don't go away again. Okay, okay, great. I'm so glad. Okay, let me grab the caller here. Okay. What to do when your partner... Hello. Well, when their nervous the system is regulated and they get jealous really easily. But before you answer... Oh, I'm hearing an <laughs> echo. I want to grab our caller here so they don't go away again. Okay, great. Oh, I think... I'm so glad. Whoever the caller, the caller is, you might have to... What to do when your There's partner... There's an echo. Hello. Hello. Yeah, you might have to turn off your... Um, you might have it playing in two different places. There's a delay. Oh. So whoever the caller is, you might have to turn off one of the places where it's playing. Oh. Okay. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah. See, there's a delay. I can hear myself talking. So. Yeah. Okay. I think it's I think it's gone now. So go ahead and ask your question. Yeah. Go ahead and ask your question now. We're ready for you. Okay. Um. My name is Sonia Song. I have one question for uh, Cassie and one for Dumati. 
Um, so I really enjoyed the, uh, reading the book. First of all, it's not a question, it's a comment. I because I'm the younger generation of the uh, uh, the old the party elders. Younger elders. My, yeah, the younger elders. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm just uh, between the younger and the older because I'm uh, 75. But my two um, uh, late um, husbands are the older uh, uh, the generation. Older elders. The elders. And then I can um, tell from my own own uh, experience that it's a great to have multiple partners, so that uh, you know uh, my one one partner help me uh, take care of the other partner, you know, and then um, uh, so it's a it's a um, great benefit. Um, and then uh, uh, I think that uh, uh, Kathy's um, uh, book is so timely and warm and engaging. Because uh, you're not reading about somebody else's life; it's like your own, the, the your own life. You know, your your own people, that uh, their uh, stories and uh, their um, uh, challenges, the pleasures and uh, their uh, creative solutions. So it's a very, I find it very warm and engaging, and uh, I think that's a must read for all poly leaders. Um, my my question. Thank for, you, Sonia. Before you yes, go on, yes. please tell. Uh, would you please tell us more, if you're willing, about how, how when your husband was ill and you, your your new yes, husband yes. helped you take care of him, and then you had the next husband that became ill and was. Tell us more about that because you're you're such a fantastic. Your family is such a fantastic <laughs> example of a poly family that pulled together to take care of a, someone who was sick and dying. Yeah, my um, uh, second husband was uh, like a pioneer in the in the poly movement. He was a, a, a professor of uh, uh, social psychology in the University of Connecticut. He was about uh, thirty years older than I was, and then, uh, uh, but he created an intentional community, a poly in, uh, community, but the and the. Uh, the, the members bought the land and uh, uh, built a house and lived there, but it didn't last very long. But the 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 dream of Polly still lived in him. So when I met him in San Francisco, um, you know, uh, it's like a struggled his old, uh, you know, passion for Polly. Uh, we were together for about eight years, and he had a stroke, and he couldn't, uh, uh, you know. Um, he was in a wheelchair, couldn't think clearly, and couldn't uh, um, uh, read and write. And he thinks that he has done, he had a very full life, um, and uh, uh, and uh, it's time for him to go. So he convinced his uh, um, um, uh, primary care doctor to put him under home hospice, um, and he encouraged me to go out and date. And find someone who will who will love me as much as he does. And it was very hard for me to accept that for a long time. But eventually, I did. And then I I found a, uh, after dating several people, and I found another person. Uh, and uh, so I uh, uh, brought him. Oh, I met the the my uh, this uh, partner at. Uh, you know, in San Francisco, a, 
uh, a meeting called uh, Love and Politics. And I brought him home. They two met, and then they uh, they talked about they had so, so much in common. They were both uh, World War II veterans. One was uh, in the Army, one was in the Air Force. They both were born in New York, and they were uh, they they both had some French connection. One one's mom was con- uh, French. Mm-hmm. The other one uh, lived in France when he was young. Um, so um, this. Uh, the the second partner his name is Lino and then uh, he was living in a senior housing and uh, I and the uh, Don we were living in Marine County uh, every time I had to you know drive about an hour to his place and back and forth so we we suggest that he would move in with me, with us and then uh, the, he helped me uh, taking care of uh, Don for the oh they said that um, they have so much in common. And the one thing, another thing that they, they, they both love the same woman. <laughs> and then, uh, oh, thank uh, you. For, Sonia, thank you so much for sharing that. I appreciate you sharing that. I, I didn't want to keep you from asking a question, though, so I'll, I'll, I'll let, have you ask that now. Yeah, the question is that uh, um, what are the online uh, resources that uh, I can get uh, connections with the uh, poly people, you know, uh, the oh. online resources? And then the question for yeah. Smarty is, uh, uh, since uh, she is in uh, uh, Kauai and uh, I live in Kauai, another island, I want to know, uh, is there a poly community in Hawaii, and do they have a regular event? If so, how, how to okay. uh, get the information? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question, and that is one of the most common questions that um, I get. Is like, where do, how do I find compatible polyamorous people? Because, you know, they're not. You can't just go to the grocery store and you know talk to somebody over the vegetables about that. You know. <laughs> so, I always. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's dating apps, but I find that dating apps are really good if you're like a young, attractive woman. But if you're in any other demographic, <laughs> they're a big time sink. So my advice is to go to places where polyamorous people congregate, even if it means doing some travel. Um, I've been able to find, uh, you know, enough partners to satisfy me over the last few years from going to polyamorous events. And you're in luck because there's a, a really awesome, thriving community in Hawaii. However, it's not on Kauai because Kauai is very small. It's on the big island. Um, so oh, at least I you see. don't have to travel to the mainland. <laughs> uh-huh. um, oh, but good. there's something called uh, Network for a New Culture, and uh-huh. they have an intentional community on the big island called La'akea. So if you email uh-huh. me at sumatisparks at okay. gmail.com, um, uh-huh. I can send you a link to that. Uh, anybody else that wants to email, email me there, again? I have uh, sumatisparks at gmail.com. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. And and also on my website there's a link to my email my email too. So mm-hmm. sympathysparks.com. Okay. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have this um I have a I haven't updated it in the last year, but I have a document that directs you to all the conferences and the meetup groups mm-hmm. and all yeah. the places and it's not totally up to date, but it, at least it gets you in the direction of where to find things, what to google and so forth. So yeah, feel free to email me and I'll send you a link to okay. that. Just remind me what you're right. what you're emailing me about. But yeah, that is the most com- really common question. Like, how do I find my people? 
Okay, thank you, thank you. So thank you so much for calling, Sonia. I really appreciate your call in and, you know, really awesome story. Thank you for sharing that with us. I wanted to mention before you hang up, Sonia, uh, Sonia uh, wrote the um, bibliography for my book, Polyamorous Elders. It's the most complete bibliography ever of poly- books about polyamory. It is very complete and up to the minute, and I really want to recommend that, and thank you, Sonia, for writing that. Oh, yeah, oh, that's great to know. I've ever written on polyamory. <laughs> and also, wow, that's fantastic. I want you also to include the list for the, the movie and the TV shows. I was surprised to find so many. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, fantastic. Yes, Sonia also has made up a, a, a list of a, a bibliography of TV and shows and movies with the polyamorous theme. So wow. That's really great. Wow. So that's like an extra bonus. Not only do you get your amazing book, but you also get that incredible bibliography. So <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. All right, Sonia, thank you so much for calling in. Thank you, uh, you both, for doing okay. this. Great. Okay, you're welcome. Okay, talk to you later. Bye. Okay, Kathy, so we just have a few more minutes. I want to give you a chance to answer the question about what to do when your partner is jealous. Well, the simple answer is shut up and listen. And I say that over and over again to people, <laughs> shut up and listen. It may seem kind of rude to say that, but it, it's so important because when a partner is jealous, they're usually very anxious. They can be sort of accusatory. And so we feel very defensive and we want to justify and defend and explain, you know, why we're doing exactly what we're doing. And we want to claim, we've, oh, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything outside of our agreement. So why are you jealous? And et cetera. It's very important to just really listen to what your partner is saying and listen to their feelings. Uh, Because what often happens in these situations is they're expressing feelings and we're expressing thoughts, logic, rational argument. And so they're saying feelings, 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 and we're saying argument, 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 rational, thought, (laughs) thought, thought. And you're, you're not hearing each other. They really need you to understand like what their underlying fears are. Usually the fears are that you're going to leave them or that you no longer love them or that you love this other person more or they're feeling neglected. They're feeling like they're not getting enough of your time and attention. And so it's very important to just listen and try to empathize and be loving and gentle with them rather than trying to argue or defend or explain, because that they're not going to be able to hear any of that right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and love the, that. That's so great. Go ahead. Yeah, the, the second very important step is asking your partner whether they mainly need validation, acknowledgement, love, and attention and support right now, or whether they are asking you for a change in your behavior. Because Mm -hmm. oftentimes we immediately assume they're telling us that we're doing something wrong. They're telling us, I want Mm -hmm. you to do something different. When most of the time they're just needing support and understanding. And so Mm -hmm. it, it is important to try to clarify that. Are they asking, for instance, if... 
if it really caused them a lot of distress that you stayed overnight with a new partner for the first time, are they saying, I don't want you to stay overnight with them yet, I'm not ready for that? Or are they saying, wow, that was hard for me, I just need you to kind of take care of me around this, I'm not asking you to not Mm -hmm. do this. Whatever the thing is that kind of triggered their feelings about this. So uh, if, in fact, they do want to change in your behavior, that doesn't mean you have to agree to it. It just means you want to understand what is it that they want from you or are asking from you right now. Exactly. I love that you made that that distinction between, you know, do you just want me to give you support and reassurance right now or do you have a request that something be different? Because when I had that big meltdown, you know, after my partner, quote, demoted me, (laughs) um, Uh I really just Uh want, I just wanted us all to come together and talk about the changes and have my feelings be validated. That's all I needed. I didn't even need more time with him. I was really busy running a business. I would have loved to have a little bit more time and not have to take care of his needs all the time. You know, I would have really loved to share him with another partner more, but I didn't feel like my feelings were were seen and cared about. And that's, I think, what caused me to get so dysregulated. So that's huge. I really appreciate the way you phrase that. It's really important. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah, and in, in in that jealousy workbook, there is a kind of a uh, there was a, f- a few pages about that where uh, there's a, some specific steps that I suggest people take when your partner is having some kind of a m- m- jealousy, like emotional dysregulation experience. How you can help them mm-hmm. and ultimately help yourself as well, because you know it's very important for you and your partner to repair whatever distress is going on and that ultimately is going to help your relationship exactly. and help you as well. Right, right, right. Well, this has been amazing, Kathy. I'm so glad to have you back on the show again because you, you just never cease to uh, enlighten me with the how articulate you are about these issues and, um, you know, I always learn something. So thank you for being here and I want to give you some time to share with the listeners anything else that was left unsaid and um, anything you want to share about your book or how to buy it and how to reach you and so forth, what you're available for. So take it away. I just wanted to mention one other trend that really surprised me that I found through the interviews. There a trend of a small but significant number of older women who are heterosexual women who all their lives have believed very strongly that they needed and wanted a monogamous relationship and that they are very much see themselves as monogamously oriented, but who are entering uh, relationships in their elder years with poly men who are already married to another woman. And that Mm -hmm. it was a very interesting trend to see that these poly relationships work pretty well for these women who have always considered themselves monogamous by nature and in fact these women are continuing to be monogamous in the relationship but a poly relationship actually meets most of their relational needs at this particular life stage for them and a number of these women have said well I always thought I needed a monogamous relationship but that was because when I was younger my you know I 
I wanted a full-time father for my children, and I wanted a full-time mm-hmm. marriage partner to uh, so that we would have enough income to provide for children and to create mm-hmm. this life together. Uh, but now that I'm older, uh, my kids are grown, and they don't need a father, you know, and I'm divorced. You know, so, uh, and I've spent, you know, 30 years or more, you know, taking care of a husband and children, and I don't want to take care of a husband now. I want to have a life right. now, so let the wife do that stuff, you know. Let the wife cook and clean right. or whatever else, you know. Uh, let the wife take care of him when he's sick. Let the wife do all that. Uh, I want to have a relationship with him. Uh, and a lot of these women said, you know, they needed a lot more love and attention from a man when they were younger. But now, you know, they want to do something else in life. They're not as focused on relationships. And many of them said, you know, my kids and grandkids provide all the love and attention I need. And I get, you know, a lot of, I want to spend a lot of time with my family members, my kids and grandkids. And if I had a full-time husband, you know, he'd be getting in my way, you know. He'd be complaining mm-hmm. that I was, you know, taking, mm-hmm. spending so much time with my kids and grandkids. And I get a lot of love and affection from them. You know, I don't really need a full-time relationship with a man. So uh, I found that very interesting. And then quite a few of these women said, you know, I deferred, like, starting a business or completing my college education all those years because I was raising kids, and now I have the opportunity to go back to college and get my degree or to start a business or there's something else to start a nonprofit to provide for, you know, some need in the community. I really couldn't do that if I had a full-time husband. So mm-hmm. I found that mm-hmm. extremely interesting that there was such a, a, a this trend that I would have never imagined. Yeah, and, and they're converts. Polyamory in their old age. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, and can you speak about how that would benefit the wife in the long-term relationship too? Right, right. Because uh, you know, she, uh, you know, she has a lot of other things she wants to do. Often the the wives have you know boyfriends or you know they've got or girlfriends. They've got other relationships. You know, they're poly too, so they're okay, you know, with the husband spending time with someone else because they have their other relationships too. Yeah, and I've also found that sometimes, and it's not always women, but sometimes, you know, one of the partners really is genuinely not interested in sex anymore, even, and it's not just because of some childhood unresolved trauma. It could just be that they have had an illness or they're postmenopausal and they really are totally fine. They're just kind of asexual now and they they want their spouse to take care of that somewhere else and leave them alone <laughs> yes i have seen that too yeah that certainly uh, is true and i've seen that certainly not only amongst it's not only true of women i've seen i i've met plenty of older women who said they were really glad that they had a boyfriend because their husband no longer had an interest in sex or you yeah, know because exactly, of having had prostate yeah. cancer no longer could really have mm-hmm. sex in them and so, and so, yeah, everybody's happy right, and that, because that way they, are they don't have, yeah, and they don't have to blow up their multi-decade relationship. They can still have all the other parts of it. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, they can have so as little or as much sex as they happy. want, and they don't have to get divorced because of sexual incompatibility. Exactly. Right. 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 Yeah. I just want to acknowledge the time and give you a chance to share how we can reach you and get your book and everything. You know, the book is put out by Roman and Littlefield, and you can uh, you can get it through Roman and Littlefield. That's Roman.com. 
Uh, I also encourage people to buy it through uh, IndieBound.com or Bookshop.org. These are two uh, ways to avoid buying books on Amazon, which I strongly support people Mm -hmm. to avoid buying books on Amazon. Jeff Bezos does not need your money, uh, but these independent booksellers do. (laughs) So I would encourage you to get Mm -hmm. the book through them or through the publisher. Uh, My other books I have available on my website. You can buy them from me if you prefer at uh, kathylabriola.com. Okay, perfect. Great. And um, I know that your practice is pretty full, so um, are you wanting anybody to come your way for coaching right now or...? Uh, I don't have any openings right now, but I always encourage people to contact me uh, either by email or off to, or by phone to let me, you know, if you're interested, and I certainly could refer you to someone else or uh, put you on my waiting list, but uh, I, right now I don't have any openings. Okay, great. Well, good for you. <laughs> well, thank you for all that you've brought to the community, Kathy. You're such a gem, and I really appreciate you being on the show again. Well, thank you for this wonderful opportunity, and uh, yeah, and uh, thanks for all the great work you're doing, Suma, and also putting doing this radio show. A lot of people get access to mm-hmm. this information that may not have uh, may not have access to it in their own geographical area. Right, right, right. Okay, well, have a good evening. We'll talk to you soon. Great, thank you. Bye. Okay, bye.